0: You ready? If you got your Bibles, open to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Uh, and then also 2 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going we're gonna to kill Absalom today, all right? There you go. Some of you have been around. We've been working on killing him for the last eight months, and so we're, we're finally going to do it today. It's going to take two weeks to do it, all right? But just know uh, we finally have worked through it to this point. So again, uh, James chapter 1 and 2 Samuel chapter 18. Study today starts with this question. Have you ever gone through something and asked God if it was really necessary, all right? Have you ever gone through something and ask God if it was really necessary. We've actually asked that question another time through the study. It just fits perfectly as the lead in for today too. Sometimes we can just get hit with things and we look at God and go, is it really necessary? Does it have to be this way? Uh, but remember from our studies in the weeks past, God doesn't waste time. God doesn't make junk. All right. And so because of that, uh, if we're going through it, it is something that we are going to be able to use later on. Uh, going through something that's not really necessary. Maybe the best example of that was a movie from the 1980s called The Karate Kid. Do you remember The Karate Kid? All right. The whole point of The Karate Kid, uh, a kid named Daniel LaRusso getting beat up. And I realize the whole thing with Cobra Kai on whether or not Daniel LaRusso was the hero or the villain actually all that fun debate all that here we're going from the original perspective okay kid wants to learn karate to defend himself And so what happens? He runs across a man named Mr. Miyagi who can teach him karate, and he says, will you teach me so that I can defend myself, so that I can play in this tournament or whatever? And then do you remember, all of a sudden, first lesson, Mr. Miyagi says, paint my fence. Remember? And he's like, paint the fence? Are you kidding me? And not just paint the fence, but a very specific way to paint the fence that takes a really, really long time. Then the next thing he does is he says, wax my car, remember? And not just wax my car, but wax it this very specific way that takes a long time to do it. And then he says, finally, sand my floor. And you remember he goes down and he sands the floor, right? One hand motion one way, one the other. And by the end of it, he finally gets so frustrated. Again, is this really necessary? The scene blows up one night where he's like, Mr. Miyagi, I feel like I've been remodeling your house and not learning karate. And all of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi says, show me, paint the fence. And all of a sudden he can do the move. Show me, wax on, wax off. And all of a sudden he can do the blocking move. Show me sand the floor while well, he was getting reps in so that he would be ready. I realize it's a silly movie, but I hope it sticks with you. So many times when it comes to Almighty God, we go through times of difficulty and times of trouble and we sit there and we go, Lord, was that really necessary? Did I really have to go through that? Did you have to allow me to go through this in order for me to become who I'm supposed to be? And the answer resounding from the Lord is yes, absolutely, God doesn't waste time. God doesn't make junk if he allows us to go through it. The sin in this world is never a part of God's plan. God can have no part with sin, but when God allows the sin in the world to take place and it affects us, at the end of the day, he is going to use it to make us complete, and I want to prove that to you today. Look at James chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 2 through 4. James 1, 2 through 4. If you are going through a time of great testing, of great difficulty. These are great verses to memorize. And by the way, James chapter one, it's verse two through four of chapter one. This is right off the bat what James preaches as his intro. All right. Notice that because that's important. He doesn't build to this. He starts with this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Underline consider it pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Underline trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish, underline finish, its work. So that you may be mature, underline mature. And complete, underline complete, not lacking anything. Underline not lacking anything. I love that we have right here four different separate instances where it's we are pushed towards this idea of completion. It finishes its work. It's mature. It's complete. It's not lacking anything. Most of the time when we're going through trials and we're going through times of difficulty, the last thing we think is that God is completing us, finishing some work, or doing something good in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulty. But what does James say here? Consider it joy, that God is working on you, that he's shaping you, that he's preparing you for something that's ahead that you're going to need this for. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? God is not allowing you Or those you love to needlessly suffer. By allowing adversity, he is bringing things to completion. Let me say that again. God is not allowing you or those you love to needlessly suffer. By allowing adversity, he is bringing things to completion. James says, consider it pure joy because God is preparing you for something that is to come. And specifically, not just in this life. But God is also preparing you for what's to come in eternity as well. You know why eternity is so great? It's not just that your sin isn't counted against you. You get to know God the same way He knows you forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen. It's why in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. Now we see but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face. You see, eternity is about the relationship that we have with God. And when he allows difficulty around us, it shapes us and it prepares us not just for this world, but it prepares us for the next as well. Sometimes we can get impatient with that trouble. Sometimes we can get impatient with the process. We get frustrated. We wonder if it's really necessary. And the truth is, on our side, um, very, there's very little that we can see uh, to prove what is taking, or very little that what we can see uh, that can prove that it's worth it of what we're going through. We just have to trust the Lord. And that's the story of Absalom. Absalom becomes impatient. And because of that, he is not prepared for what's been put in front of him. If you're taking notes, here's our big million dollar question. What happens to a leader that is impatient? What happens to a leader that is impatient. Now flip over to 2nd Samuel chapter 18 and we're going to start in verse 6. There's some of you in this room that deeply want to run ahead specifically to run past your problems, to run past run past the difficulties that you are navigating during this time frame. If that's you, this lesson is for you. The difficulties that God is allowing in your life are shaping you and the way that you learn to go through them, the reps that you go through to allow him to chisel you, to shape you, to sand you is preparing you for things that are coming up next. God wastes no time and God doesn't make junk. He is crafting something in you that is very special. Sadly with Absalom, he runs ahead And then we get the death of a whole lot of people. And then he also ends up losing the kingship himself. Look with me, if you will. 2 Samuel 18. And we're going to see in verses uh, 6 through 8. So the last week we had David. David's, remember, he's standing at the gate. He's high-fiving the soldiers as they roll out uh, and, uh, and go off to battle. Fun little side note here for you. Josephus, a famous, uh, a famous uh, historian during that day and time. Um, we don't know this to be 100% fact. But again, Josephus was closer to it than, than any scholar. Um, David most likely has about 4,000 men. Okay. Absalom has tens of thousands. And so that's what you need to know as we go into this passage. David's got 4,000 faithful that have trudged through the uh, that have trudged across the Jordan River with him. Uh, Absalom, he's got tens of thousands. He has the entire army of the nation of Israel uh, where they are coming after them. So 4,000 versus tens of thousands, okay? Now look at what happens in uh, uh, in verse uh, verse 6. It says so the army marched into the field to fight Israel. I know the army marched into the field to fight Israel. But the battle took place In the forest of Ephraim. underlined, the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There the army of Israel was defeated by David's men. 4,000 beats tens of thousands. And the casualties that day were great. About 20,000 men. It says the battle spread out over the whole countryside, but the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. Underline the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. Little history from the passage that we've been going through up until this point. Remember, Absalom, instead of chasing David down and killing him before he crosses the Jordan, a guy named Ahatropal said, This is the moment when you take charge, this is the moment where you take over, chase David down like a dog, kill him. But then Hushai, one of David's friend, comes up and goes, Uh, don't you think it'd be better if you stayed back? If you built up your forces and then had better numbers when you went against David, you went full force against him instead of trying to chase him down on the run. All of a sudden, Absalom listens to the bad advice of David's friend Hushai, doesn't chase after his father David to kill him, and then all of a sudden we're in the predicament that we're in. This is so interesting. On the day of the battle, Absalom doesn't have the military experience that David and his men have. He has the experience of being a prince, He has the experience of having bodyguards. He has the experience of standing at the city gate and trying to draw people away from his father. In fact, D.C. terms, dude can campaign. I'm telling you, dude can campaign. And so guess what? He's great in living rooms. He's got the big, beautiful hair. And I'm telling you, he's there. And I'm telling you, he is is one who has a big personality. But as far as the battlefield goes, he has no experience in what he's doing. The Lord has not shaped him in that way. So he runs ahead. And guess what happens? on the day of the battle, he just thinks the math will save him. I got more people. I got more men. The algorithm is in my favor. And so guess what? Every one of us have heard the story of Robin Hood, right? Where did Robin Hood and his men hide out? His merry men. All right. Where did they hide out? Sherwood sure, Forest. Sure, I'm telling you, whether it be Absalom's day, Robin Hood's day or whatever, Hiding in the forest, you don't want to fight in the forest. The numbers don't matter if you're in a whole bunch of trees. There's a lot of places for the people to hide. The, number doesn't, the numbers don't work, even though the math's in their favor. The math wasn't the most important piece in the circumstance. And 4,000 were able to defend themselves against tens of thousands that day. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? What happens when a leader is impatient? Number one, they fight in the wrong places. They fight in the wrong places. David had story after story. What do you do for just a little military strategy? What do you do when an enemy falls back into a location where they're heavily fortified? You just circle around the area, you blockade it, and then you wait them out. That's all they had to do. But Absalom had this moment where he was going to be affirmed as the king on the battlefield where he was going to step up and all of a sudden be affirmed as the leader when he was finally going to be better than his father. And instead, he doesn't wait for the blockade. He says, go in after him. We got better numbers. I mean this as nicely as possible. Over the years, every now and again, one of you will get hooked on a get-rich-quick scheme. And you come in and say, Pastor, I want you to pray about this with me and i love you enough to look at you and say be very very careful because here's what it sounds like in 20th in the 21st century in the 20th century a lot of times it's these business endeavors now you know how many times i get to hear will you please pray for me i have this stock idea and there's this algorithm and it is foolproof <laughs> buy stocks at just the right time and can i tell you what i've noticed over the years it ain't always foolproof It ain't always foolproof. In fact, I am yet to have the time when somebody struck it filthy rich because of some algorithm they put their faith in. Listen to me. The math is part of it, but you got to be well-rounded enough to understand that the math is a piece of it. It's not the entire story, and that's the way it works with the Lord. The stuff that you've been through the difficulties you've navigated, the trials that you've been through, God is shaping you and making you well-rounded so that you can be a good manager of the blessings that he's given you. Not just the stuff, but the people that are under your care as well. All that shapes you and helps you become who you are. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? An impatient leader tunnels on one issue, leaving themselves exposed on other fronts. An impatient leader tunnels on one issue, leaving themselves exposed on other fronts. If you are in a position where you've gotten so mad at God because of a situation that you're in or difficulty you've had to navigate, I want to encourage you. Trust him because he is crafting something in you that you may just need later. So back in the day, you ever played musical chairs before when you were a kid? You ever play musical chairs? Fun game, right? Um, Here's what I've noticed. You can play with all different age levels, You play it with little kids, very tame, fun game, okay? You play it with senior adults, very tame, fun game, you know what I mean? Anybody in between, there's a little bit of larceny in you, you know what I mean? There's a little bit of craziness in you. And so here's what happens. We watched a group of students one time. They played musical chairs. It was like 40 to 60 kids that they're playing musical chairs with. And you watch it. Everybody's fighting. But towards the end, there were two kids that were left. One was like the super athlete, super competitive kid. And the other was a kid who had just kind of lucked into the finals. I mean, I'm just telling you, just sitting down, wasn't very competitive, just had lucked into the finals. I mean, who knows? Maybe they had rigged it for this kid. I don't know. But he's made it all the way to the finals. Well, here's the thing. It looks like when it gets down to one chair, that usually is the least fun part to watch. Because when the music turns off, whoever's in front of it wins. Right? And so I'll never forget, the kid who's competitive... The music turns off and he is on the back side of the chair. The kid who's not competitive is there, and I'm telling you, all he has to do is just sit down and then it's over. Well, all of a sudden, in that circumstance, you watch it. This kid, we're all watching, it's like, oh, okay, the kid's gonna win. They rigged it for him, right? All of a sudden, music stops, kid turns around, smiles. This competitive kid grabs the chair, picks it up, and chucks it to the other side of the room. Not only that, the other kid is so caught off guard, this kid then turns and form tackles the kid to the ground on the other side, gets up, runs to the other side of the room, and then just gingerly sits in the chair. And we were like, what just happened, right? (laughs) What just happened? This was crazy. And none of us ever forgot it. And I'm telling you, from that day forward, that was the strategy on if you were on the back side of the chair and somebody else was on the front, all right? Now listen, experience eliminates the math. Our experience is a piece of the puzzle just as much as the math is. In this circumstance, if the Lord is crafting something in you, don't be the one that goes, why do I have to paint the fence? Why do I have to wax the car? Why do I have to sand the floor? Realize that God is up to something. And just like James says, consider it pure joy. That God is shaping you and the trouble that you're navigating today, he will use for his good tomorrow. Paul says it this way, save your spot in 2 Samuel and flip over to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, and we're going to look at verses 12 and 13. Many of you know Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Verse 12, the lead-in, makes it so much more powerful. Look at what happens. Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. Here's what Paul has to say. Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned that the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed, whether, uh, uh, whether hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ, or through, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now stop right there for just a minute. Paul says very powerfully, when it comes to Almighty God and the difficulties that we go through, he said, I know what it's like to be in the valley, and I know what it's like to be on top of the mountain. I've had both those experiences. God has shaped my worldview through the things I've navigated. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. And he says, you know what I've learned? I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. God is the one ultimately that I look to. He is the one in whom my faith resides. Amen? That's the picture. When you're going through that difficult time and you just go, Lord, is this really necessary? I feel like I'm crawling towards the oasis like a, like, a, like a man who's thirsty in the desert. Why in the world do I have to go through this? James says, consider it joy. Because God is crafting something in you that you're going to need later. It begs the question, Have you allowed God to bring you fresh perspective in the wake of your difficulties? Have you allowed God to bring you fresh perspective in the wake of your difficulties? Or do you just stand there with your arms crossed at him and go, until you tell me why I had to go through this, I'm not moving. If that's you, then you're going to miss out on the joy of James chapter 1. There is joy in realizing God is shaping me. God is shaping my journey. He's preparing me for something that's ahead. And if you sit there with your arms crossed or you stick your fist up his nostril and say, until you prove to me that this was this was needed, I'm not moving forward, then I'm telling you, you're going to end up wasting your life. Now look at what happens at 2 Samuel 18. Let's look at verse 9. Flip back over 2 Samuel, and now we're going to look at verse 9. It says, verse 9, now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding a mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak tree, look at this, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. This is how King Absalom dies. His head gets caught in a tree. And he was left hanging in midair while the mule kept on going and kept on riding. Now stop right there for just a minute. We're going to get into all the little pieces of his death next week because that's Joab's story. This picture here of how he gets caught. Remember from our previous studies, Absalom had big, beautiful hair. In fact, it said that they could sell his hair by the pound because his hair was so big and beautiful. On the campaign trail... It made him great in the living rooms, right? That big head of hair made him incredibly noticeable. It was his trademark. Here's the question. Why in the world does he have his hair out on the day of the battle? Why is he not wearing a helmet? Why is he not cut it? If it grows back super fast, why is he not cut it? And I'll tell you exactly why. Because he wanted to be seen. Because he was there to be noticed that he had won the battle against his father that day. That he was present and David wasn't present on the day of the battle. That he was there and that David wasn't there. That he was better than his father. And instead, it wasn't great military strategy when you're fighting in a forest. So this thing that was such a strength had become a snare. If you're taking notes, write that down. That's our second point. What happens to a leader that's impatient? Number one, they fight in the wrong places. And number two, their strengths become snares. Their strengths become snares. There are some of you in this room, and God has deeply gifted you, deeply, to the point that you can lean on that giftedness, and it covers over your deficiencies on the other side. In fact, that's part of the name of the game in this city, right? Fake it till you make it. There's not a single one of you that come into the job and you're like, you know what, I'm qualified in every way for this position, right? Every one of us, you move to DC and you realize the deficiencies that you have, but here's the catch. If you choose not to allow God to shape you and work on those areas, just because you're a 10 in one area and a two in another, the Lord's goal is for completion to be finished, lacking nothing, James chapter one. And he's got to make sure that you're well rounded and not just leaning on that giftedness. When we do that, we get into big, big trouble. Allow the Lord through trial, allow the Lord through difficulty to build you up in those areas that are not necessarily your area of strength. You know what I've noticed in my own life? When I'm not gifted in an area, do you know what helps me make up for it? Wisdom. Wisdom helps you navigate that area in which you're deficient, not the strength that you have that you use to overcompensate. Wisdom helps you navigate that difficulty. So a little story here for you. If want to write this down, you can. A blessing on the campaign trail is not necessarily a blessing on the battlefield. You can write that down if you want to. blessing on the campaign trail is not necessarily a blessing on the battlefield. So back in the day, um, second best play of my athletic career, all right? happened when I was in the eighth grade. It's sad when you got to go all the way back to eighth grade for this, but this was a good one. Um, So played weak side linebacker, uh, but on scout team in the eighth grade, uh, there there was a game where they wanted me to play nose tackle. Now, nose tackle is supposed to be your biggest defensive player. And so, plays right off of the center, and I was, the, I was not the biggest. In fact, I was smaller than the center by about 100 pounds. And so, I'll never forget, I get down in my stance, and the coach said, I want you to go in, I want you to blitz the quarterback every play. He said, I'm going to tell you a side to go through. And he said, you just run that side. Well, here's the deal. I get quick off the ball, and so because of that, I just run around, and I could sack the quarterback a bunch. Well, coach finally looked at me, and he goes, you know, we'll put you in as a defensive specialist, he said, well, you've done this on scout team. He said, let's try it in the game and see how it works. Well, sure enough, I get into my little stance. We've got the other team down by their goal line. Second best play of my athletic career. I get down that four-point stance. When they hike the ball, they call a draw play. Draw is where the running back takes a little stutter step and then cuts back the other direction. It's Just, a very, just like a slow-moving handoff and the tackle turns and pulls. So there's a big wide open hole right there at the front of the line. Well, they call this blitz at the perfect time. And when I pop up to run through, there's a wide open hole straight to the quarterback. And when I see all of a sudden the quarterback turns and has the ball just like sticking out right there in front of me. And so I'm running through and I was like, I'm going to take the ball. And the handoff from the defensive side. So I run through, take the ball from the quarterback and run it in for a touchdown on the other side. We missed the extra point, but we won the game 6-0. to zero. It was crazy. It was, was an amazing little moment. So coach then looks at me and he goes, "Randall's, you may be a nose guard after all. He said, let's start practicing you at that position. Well, I'm so excited. I get down in my four-point stance. And then here's what I notice: They call a normal play. Not the blitz, but a normal play where I've got to bump up against the center and stop the front end of the play. Well, I listen, I'm like, this is awful. You know what I mean? Hitting the center every play. I really just want to sack the quarterback. Plus, I was like, I'm fast enough. I can just run around on the side. Well, I start guessing, just like fractions, and I start going one side to another instead of standing up the center. And I'm hitting the quarterback just about every time. Well, the coach halts the whole group. And he goes, Randalls, are you guessing? And I was like, no, man, no. And he was like, are you guessing? I was like, a little. I said, but I just want to sack the quarterback. He goes, we don't need you to sack the quarterback. He said, we need you to clog the front. He said, that's what the nose tackle does. If you want to be a nose tackle, you got to do. He said, let me teach you what happens if you guess wrong. All of a sudden, he calls the play and says, you go this side. And he said, we're going to run the play on this other side. I would get stood up and the running back runs straight in for a touchdown, completely and totally untouched. And I remember in front of the whole team that day, he said, this isn't just for Randall's, this is for all of you. He said, just because you have an idea on what would be better doesn't mean you don't need to listen to the head coach. Now listen, at the end of the day, I decided it was much more fun being a linebacker All right, than it was getting hit by the center every single play. I'll tell you a story to say this, your strengths, if you lean into them too heavy, man, it may be great for a time, but all the other team has to do is figure out what you're doing, and then they can plan around you, and then you are in big big trouble. Not just you, but everybody on the team that's counting on you as well. You got to make sure that character backs up that charisma that God has given you. Um, By the way, a little great verse here. Save your spot in 2 Samuel. Flip over to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29 verse 25. And here's what it says. Proverbs 29 25. It says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts the Lord is kept safe. The picture of this verse that's so interesting. Fear of man doesn't just mean fear here. Fear of man means trusting in your own abilities, trusting in someone else's numbers, trusting in the things of this world. If we get so tunnel visioned on what we can control, fear of those things will prove to be a snare. But those who put their trust, their fear in the Lord will be kept safe. It begs the question, do you have an unhealthy faith in your abilities? Do you have an unhealthy faith in your abilities? A patient leader realizes the Lord is the one ultimately who makes the decision. And then we get one final verse. Flip over to 2 Samuel again, and we're going to look at verse 18. We're going to skip through Absalom's actual death, and the process of that will unfold next week. Um, Short version of the story, Joab pins him to the tree that he's hung in with three javelin, and then gets his bodyguards to circle around him and then kills him the same way that Absalom had killed his brother Amnon. More on that next week. But he circles around and he kills him that same way. All of a sudden we get verse 18, which is Absalom's legacy. Are you ready for this? This is a very DC verse. It says, During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. I underline as a monument to himself for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Stop right there for just a minute. This is so interesting. Absalom was not king for very long. He had no real accomplishments whatsoever, and he builds this monument that lasts to the day that the writer here in 2 Samuel puts together. Can I tell you why that's interesting? The monument was not to the greatness of Absalom. The monument was to the fact it was a warning that at the end of the day, you do not get to write your own legacy. At the end of the day, to quote George Washington from Hamilton, all right? You have no control who lives, who dies, who writes your story, right? You have no control over that. At the end of the day, the Lord is the one who governs your steps and what your work was, all, was, was always going to be worth. If you're taking notes, write this down. You're ready. What happens to a leader that's impatient? Number one, they fight in the wrong places. Number two, their strengths become snares. And number three, their monuments become warnings. Their monuments become warnings. And that's what happens to Absalom. He builds himself a monument. You ever had that friend himself a nickname? You ever had that happen before? They give themselves a nickname. What was that? Seinfeld over the years? Where what did what would George, what did, he, what did he want his nickname to be? T-Bone. You remember T-Bone? And he, they were like, why are you calling yourself T-Bone? And he was like, I think it's a great nickname, right? I'm just going to call myself that. Back in the day, my sister brought a guy home, and uh, he goes up to my dad Okay, got a picture of a 16-year-old kid, and my dad looks like me, but scary, all right? And so walks up to my dad. I'll never forget, he walks up, and he goes, hey, Mr. Randalls." He said, uh, my name's Justin, but you can call me Blaze. <laughs> and dad was like, Blaze. He goes, who gave you that nickname? And without skipping a me, that kid goes, I gave it to myself. And it was just like, okay. That actually blessed dad because he was like, okay, so it's not drug-related. It's just idiot-related, okay? That, that's how it works, right? Absalom builds a monument to his greatness at the beginning of his kingship. He was not king very long. Here's the deal. At the end of the day, if you want to write this down, you can. No one gets to write their own legacy. No one gets to write their own legacy. Part of being a patient leader is realizing I do what God wants me to do every single day day. You try to do it every single hour. You try to do it every single minute. You try to do it every single second, giving your life completely and totally to the Lord. And at the end of your life, He is the one who writes your story and decides what is or is not eternal. Hadn't you lived in this city long enough? You don't even have to be here very long to know that sometimes a monument here or there, the wind blows one direction or another, and something that meant strength And honor one day all of a sudden means disgrace and disgust the next. It is the craziest thing. It was a part of living in this city I did not expect. Things that were so lifted up that all of a sudden the next day become so disgusted with. And then they come back around. I mean, it really is one of the most bizarre things. At the end of the day with your life, the things that you do for the kingdom of God, those are the things that are eternal in nature. Those are the things that do not change with time. They don't get swayed like a reed in the wind. (laughs) You're going to get at the end of the service an update on Slovakia and the mission trip that we've been doing. We get to go one year, we got to go to Prague and uh, walk the Charles Bridge. And uh, if you've ever been to Prague before, it's amazing. The Slovakia mission trip, uh, we've done eight years here at Waterfront. Every year we've gone, and we pick a different city to go sightseeing in every year. So Prague was this particular year, just not too far. One day of sightseeing for a whole week of mission. I'll never forget, we're walking the Charles Bridge. And on the Charles Bridge, this beautiful bridge, there's a, there are three statues of kings. And they were the kings during the time period that the Charles Bridge was being built. Uh, two kings, names Charles on one side. And then in the middle is King Wenceslas. Some of you know him from the Christmas song, Good King Wenceslas. He's in the middle. I'll never forget, we're with our guide, who was a pastor. His dad was the first Baptist church in Prague years ago. His brother was during the communist era. He was our guide as we're walking through. Dr. Schultz, then we see these statues of these three men. And as we're walking by, one of the Charleses is being spit on by the people who walk by on the bridge. And I remember I looked at Dr. Schultz and I was like, they're spitting on that statue. And he goes, it's good luck. I said, it's good luck to spit on that king? I said, how old is he? And he goes, well, he made a very bad mistake 600 years ago. It's like 600 years ago. He said, in 1415, he said he had offered asylum to a preacher named John Huss. John Huss is the one who came up with the ideas that would, again, translate 100 years later for Martin Luther that would become the 95 Thesis on the door of the Catholic Church. And so, all that to say, he goes, John Huss was betrayed by that king. He said, uh, they turned him in, burned John Huss at the stake, and he said, so they spit on the statue for good luck to this day. I said, so do all these people know that story? He goes, No. He goes, they just know a lot of people spit on that statue, and it's good luck. I think I have to say this. I highly doubt that when they were building the bridge, that one of the King Charles's was like, man, I hope someone spits on my statue every day for 600 years, right? <laughs> that was never a legacy that they would have written for themselves. But in patient leadership, he had a bad day. And that bad day would end up carrying on, even in legend, hundreds of years after his death. There's not a one of you that wakes up in the morning and goes, man, I hope my monument is a mockery to the life that I lived. How do you keep from letting that happen? You trust God every day. You trust that what he's shaping in you, what he's forming in you, what he's sanding in you, what he's painting in you, is something that he is going to use for his glory and something that will be eternal in nature. Don't end up a spit on statue. Is that a good word? Don't end up a spit on statue. It begs this final question. Has your cover become more important than your contents? Has your cover become more important than your contents? I have no doubt that if you walked through the Valley of the Kings after that monument to Absalom was built, you would have thought, who is this great man? And they would go, that's Absalom. And they'd have gone, oh, that's right. He didn't even reign that long, and he built himself a monument? At the end of the day, the Lord is the one who gets to write our legacy. He's the one who decides what's eternal. Thanks for listening today. Here's the good news. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he is making all things new. Our God is bringing things to completion, and he's doing that in each one of us. But we have to trust him, especially when we're going through days we wonder if they're necessary. Let's bow our heads for prayer.